We're back! We're back! This is a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. What's happening? You got that post-election day glow about you. Is that the word for it? I, I decided like, oh, to... Oh, no one died. Nice. I went back to the old me last night, and the last thing I did before I logged off of Twitter was sent a two-minute video of over-the-top Tom Halley and strike calls to Lauren Boebert. Yeah, look at you. It's not, it's not mature. It's not something <laughs> that I'm proud of having done, but it's something that the you know 2015 version of me would have... Uh, I just would have stayed doing that, not gone to bed at all. <laughs> you know what I did? I... Uh... It was like around eight o'clock. I was like, "Oh, well, I should, you know, be an informed citizen and make sure, see how the returns are going." And I was like, Wrong. "Wait a second! Like, I didn't watch this shit in 2020, and that shit went like they didn't declare Biden the winner for like three fucking days." Yeah. And I was like, and it was a midterm, and I was like, I don't want to stay up just to watch Santa take a shit down my chimney. Like, what's the point of that? <laughs> so I've, I, I, it, it, like eight o'clock, I like I shut everything down. I got stoned. I thought about the Vikings all night. I slept like a baby. I woke up and then like the papers were like, eh, things are kind of pretty much the same. It's all right. And I was like, yeah. yeah. Anyway, to I was celebrate. trying to be smart like that. But at some point in every person's life, you're entering like Dutch Rennert's name into YouTube to see if there's any really doofy <laughs> strike three calls of his. I'm lucky that I got to that point. Um, I'm getting I'm getting better now. It's sort of like predict like knowing when something's about to be bad for my mental health and like getting the fuck away from it, yeah, which is a up. shame because we invited Bamani Jones onto the show. I can't believe it. Look who came crawling back onto our <laughs> podcast just to boost his Q rating. It's ESPN's Bomani Jones. Hi, Bo. Hey, hey man. What's going on? Uh, Bomani, you just re-upped with the four letter and your HBO show, Game Theory, returns for a second season in January. Congratulations and congratulations again. No, I appreciate it, man. And triple congratulations, because you got to come on our show. Wow. It's all wins, man. You've completed the big three. (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. We're getting back into the office for game theory, so just getting ready for my life to be a little bit more chaotic. But you know, that's how it goes. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask, how how has that been? And I don't mean like from like a fame standpoint or a money standpoint or anything. I just mean like the actual logistics of having to host your own show on HBO and like I assume you creatively run it and all that stuff. How much work has had to go? Are you working like twenty hour days to make sure these these are tapings go well? So the one thing I have to say is the staff does a good job of making sure I don't have to do the twenty hour a day part because at some point somebody's gonna stick a camera in my face and so right. I need to look like I've rested, you know, <laughs> you and they can't look like grim death. Right. You don't have the podcaster's privilege. Like I look like I just got hauled out of a bog right now. I'm <laughs> like my- but it's fine. No one can see me. They don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, no, like, like they, there's a recognition in that world that yeah, I got a lot to do. But there's also a hey, he needs to go home and get some rest. Hey, you need to bail on this, right? Like I'm the one person that can't just be groggy and sluggish. But it's been, I don't liberating doesn't feel like the right word. But like when I'm doing stuff for ESPN, it's by and large just reactionary, right? This thing just happened. Give us your opinion on that, right? Right. And right. I can and I can do that pretty quick. This is more, hey, I've got this take. How do we bring this thing to life, right? Like, how do we make this a, dre- a three-dimensional sort of setup with this and how to bring all these different things together and how to get the most out of everybody that's around and know who's good at this, who's good at that, who can come up with this, who can come up with that. And so there's something really cool about no longer having to be the one that's like, all right, these are my ideas and all it is is me, right? We are no longer limited by my brain. 
I can come with the start. Somebody else comes with something else. We put this whole thing together. What else can we possibly do with this? And that's been fun, man. That's been a lot of fun because I can honestly do most of the other stuff just rolling out of bed. That's not really the case with this. So your brain will let you chill out as regards to the show? Because sometimes, you know, if you have ownership, creative ownership over something, you know, some, some of us are naturally inclined to obsess over those things because it's just where our brain takes us. You're able to not do that? Yeah, I think... We'll see how this second season goes, because on the first season, I was honestly just so happy to be there. (laughs) You know, like it really was. It's like, yo, I got a chance to do six episodes of a TV show on HBO. I'm really just leaning in on the fact that, like, how in the hell did this happen? Let's go ahead and do this. You were the cop in the state of television. Correct. Correct. (laughs) That's where I was, right? But now... I kind of like to keep this thing going and you know it's people dependent on me and all of that stuff like I did figure out that last season while there was a benefit I think to the staff of my general cool about hey man we're just gonna do our best and let the chips fall where they may there's also a lot of other people who didn't make as much money as I did who are kind of (laughs) like hey man like that sounds cool but we'd like to have jobs we'd like to be able to keep this money coming in oh when you put it like that right yeah, because yeah. all of a sudden you have you have a responsibility. Yes, yes. No, it's 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 deeper than rap uh, when it comes to that. But no, like I went down to the office yesterday for the first time, and we're trying to map out what the topics are that we want to do for this season and everything else. And that stuff is just a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Yeah, it That's seems more like the stuff that you'd get on the podcast than the stuff that you would do on TV. Yes, which I think is what I liked about the show that there's that sort of. You did a really good job with this, I thought, last week on the Kyrie story and the, the episode with Vincent Goodwill. Um, where you're just sort of like mapping the the meta story around a thing that you then, you know, later that day are going to have to go on TV and like have a take about. But like how you come to be in a position to have a take on one side of the story or another or like how that story gets told. I think that that's like, I don't know, that's what made the show fun for me to watch was that like, that is, I mean, that's our business. That's like what we write about is what Deadspin wrote about when we were there. It's not something that gets talked about or written about very much otherwise, like that it is mostly about the takes and the actual events of the day. Is that like, did that help you like keep your brain in balance? Because like half of your job is, like you said, reacting to the stuff that's happening. And yet you're obviously also seeing the broader like game within which all of that is happening. Like, is it therapeutic in any way or is it just the sort of thing where you're always working? So you're always in the working part of your brain. No, I do think that there was something kind of therapeutic about it because, I mean, I don't really do television for ESPN anymore. Like for the last year and change, I've been on television very, very rarely. And Mm. so what that means, though, is. I am no longer like kind of required to be in the quick instant reaction business anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I can see this stuff. I might have the instant reaction. You know, um, I stopped really tweeting before that became cool recently with Elon Musk. So <laughs> I kind of backed out of that, you know, that sort of economy. And so. Well, backed off for you. No, no, I'm back. If you no, really he doesn't post anymore. I'm just <laughs> saying you tweeted the other day. I'm just yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get it. I'll get in there every now and then on something, but I'm just kind of like, it's no fun for me anymore. Like, if I were to look in Twitter and go to my mentions as filtered out by all the things I need to do to keep all the bums out, right? I get like 
yeah. 10 replies a day, maybe no, yeah. matter how much, like, like, no matter how much I'm sending. And then if I go search for Bomani, which then pulls up everything that comes up under my name, Ooh. can't do that. It's zillions of people. Some of them, by the way, being reasonable people, but everybody's hiding behind a fake picture and a fake name. And so the filter gets all of that out of there. So, but I'm not in that game anymore. So yeah, there is something to be said now for me as someone who, even when I was writing, it was by and large, like instant reaction kind of writing. I don't really feel the pressure to do that anymore, right? So now it's like, hey, I've got this bigger idea and we can stop and take some time and let it marinate for a little bit. And then, of course, I got this incredible staff of people with beautiful brains who can then come up and think of other things that we might be able to add on to it and everything else. So, you know, there's there's something to be said now for being able to take a little bit more care. Like, I don't think that a lot of people can get, because it sounds, I think, to people when they hear me, like I've really practice these things out and manicure them and have an outline and everything else now nah, man i'm popping this stuff off the top of the dome by and large even if i've been thinking about it for the longest when you get it it's a pretty spontaneous reaction you know like in that moment of what it is and now i've learned a bit more about it. okay now we can chill this out and wow this idea i thought was so great actually isn't that good now that i've had two weeks to think about whether or not that's actually what i want to do and even with um that will remain true even with the new contract you have with ESPN. You won't be obligated to be on television. You, they won't press the red take button. Like anytime Dan Snyder does something shitty and be like, oh, we need Bamani. Boop, and then you got to be there. I tweet myself into their consideration when that happens. So like, <laughs> with the Kyrie thing where I said that the Nets should waive Kyrie. And this was very early on because I yeah. played the game theory You're the first out. person I saw say it. Yeah, yep. I was just like, this is how it's going to end. Like, why are we waiting? There's no way. And you see where it's going now, right? Basically hurtling toward the day that they ultimately have to waive him. Then I get the call, right? It's like, hey, you want to come on and talk about Kyrie? <laughs> Otherwise, like, they don't remember I'm there. In that podcast, that was interesting, too. It's like, obviously, like, whatever. You said what you said. The machine responded as the machine responds. And then you had to be like, wait, do I really want to be the guy that's going on every show and being like, yes, I'm the person that thinks that Kyrie Irving should be waived. That there is, like, being able to, like, not have to just get, like, plugged into the hole that is shaped like you in these debates is, like, I mean, it seems like you had other stuff going on there. But that's obviously, like a nice little bit of freedom to have. Yeah, you, you do don't become, have to just like you can become the face of the soundboard and you, make the stuff come out. Yeah, you you can become the face of the take when you say it er, oh, like yeah. early and definitively. And like, I and I saw it coming, man. I did one appearance and the last thing was, all right, Bomani, just to be clear, um you're saying the Nets should wave Kyrie and my response was should is a tricky word in yeah. this case. I was like, "Oh, no, 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 no. I see where this is yes. going." Yep. No, I, thank you. Where do you think it was going? It was going to, Bomani Jones says, Net should wave Kyrie Irving on every aggregated site that anybody can come up with. And my rationale was just too nuanced for me to allow that to be boiled down into such a simple take. It was just like, look, man, y'all are going to want him to do this one thing. He's not going to back down. There's going to be no other solution. He's not going to have trade value. Why are you waiting? Right. Which is not nearly the moralistic hot take that I think that people were looking for in right. that moment. Well, do you think that uh, he ever plays for the Nets again? No, I don't think he plays another yeah. game. Do you think he plays Aaron? an NBA game ever again? No. Damn. Yeah, he's, I think he's in the, the Trevor Bauer zone right now where he's just going to be this kind of blank subject of various different bits of like sort of cheesy executive wrangling. Like right now, like it seems like the NBA and the Nets are doing like kind of an I got it, you take it thing on like who's going to actually be the person to make the decision 
to like cut him loose one way or the other. But there's all this like administrative wrangling that we have to go through before that. It's kind of <laughs> grim, actually, because well, it's like in the same way that to a certain extent what you were saying about like once you enter the car wash of the discourse, it's like it's not actually about the thing you're talking about. It's about the process of talking about it and, you know, keeping that sort of aloft. In this case, it's like I feel like it has very little to do with, I mean, not just with that stupid fucking movie that you had to watch, Drew, or with yeah. like any of the ideas in play. Oh, but loved like, it. At this better point, than cats. Don't watch it. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just about like everybody doing all of the things that they have to do in order to make this inevitable outcome happen. Like we're like beyond any sort of meaning with it. It's kind of dispiriting in that way. Well, but, I, uh, well I got some insight on this, and so for the NBA, this is a this is a team matter, right? Like they got it. They got a trick bag here where. They have a protocol for what to do if it's an on-court matter. Who handles that? They've got a protocol for off-court matters, but this one goes into a gray space on it because Kyrie actually hasn't said anything right. that, like, that hits on anything. He hasn't been the one to say a single thing. So if he had been the one to make a statement, then it becomes easy on what everybody has to do. But... This isn't really a league matter. It would have been a league matter for David Stern because he would have made it a league matter. But I think everybody kind of looks around and is like, even the suspension that the union um, is appealing, they might get that thing knocked down when you stop and think about it. Honestly, they Yo. probably should. Well, it feels like arbitrary, the, you know? That, that's the other part. Like the, the more frustrating angle about this to me is all the people who are like, I can't believe I haven't heard from a single player about this one. Number one, you might want to be careful because right. you might not want to hear what yeah. some of those players think, uh, number one. But number two, you never heard any owner come out with their diatribe against Robert Sarver. Like, that's how things work under this circumstance. And so for the union, you're supposed to fight every suspension that comes down. Like the Major League Baseball Players Association, you could go to the mound with a lead pipe. Your suspension will be appealed. Yes. Trust me, because that's what unions do. They're supposed to do that. This is the only group that's supposed to like lay down in the face of punishment and also all of a sudden be the ones to chastise their own ranks when this is not an expectation we have of anybody yeah. else. Right, and it's an expectation that you somehow have of the NBA Players Association, but not like any police union in the country. <laughs> that there's like a lot of really fucked up union activity that is just generally accepted as like and i think correctly accepted as like the cost of doing business that's just how that is like yeah and all it seems to me also that if monty please correct me if i'm wrong it seems like this is a situation where no one wants to be and buddy do i ever use this term loosely the bad guy they don't want to be the one seen making the decision because they don't want the heat that comes with having made the decision am i wrong on that I think there's something to that. I feel like that list of conditions they gave Kyrie is basically to try to make him quit his job. Yep. Right? Like, well, like that like custom designed to be like things that Kyrie would not do. Yeah. Like that list almost looked like a concert rider. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like like it, it really did. Nothing but yellow Skittles in the bowl. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Just the test of how serious you are. But I also, in a way, don't really blame them because this was so easy to fix. And he just wouldn't do it, especially yeah. since it was abundantly clear he had not watched the movie, yeah. right? Like, like once I looked up and the movie cost $12 and was three and a half hours, I was like, no chance. He yep. did not watch this. I guarantee you he did not watch all of this movie. And everything I've seen indicates that he didn't. And all he had to say was, I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't watch the movie. And I got to be careful about sharing links on things that I'm not very familiar with. And then, boom, this all goes from there. 
but he wouldn't bow down. And you had so many people directly asking him if he's an anti-Semite. And then he put his dukes up about that because he can't believe anybody would think that he does anything other than love everybody. And he just wouldn't back down. And I mean, look, I'm about sticking to your guns, but he also wants his money. And you're not going to be able to have both of those things. So you might just go ahead and pick one now. Also a classic example of the whole, like, just being normal about this once at the beginning means that he's probably playing basketball right now. Yes. But it's like a minor act of contrition that you can't make leads you to things that are like, honestly, I can understand why it would be challenging to his dignity to have to go on a fucking apology tour. Like, I think he's got stuff to apologize for, but I also feel like this is the sort of thing where, like, if he'd just been a little bit more identifiably human and flawed at the part where it was clear that this was just, like, some high shit that he did that he shouldn't have done on social media, which is, like, Lord knows who among us uh, uh, has not committed that particular sin. It's like, if he wasn't Kyrie, I guess, but whatever, then he wouldn't be Kyrie, but it, certainly we wouldn't still be talking about it. Yeah, well, also, also, I completely hijacked the podcast to talk about it. Do we want to talk about NFL shit? We no, should do that. No, also, it's so, okay. Let me just say this one thing right fast on that, though, that I think Kyrie is losing sight of. So, like, with me and ESPN, the one thing that I've always been cognizant about with my online behavior is if I stir some shit up, it's somebody's job to deal with that. And I do kind of believe that you got to have a certain measure of we're in this together about these things. And just because I feel like saying something, I don't I'm hijacking four hours of somebody's day who's got more important things to do. Right. So when they would hit me up and be like, please stop beating Darren Ravel to a pulp on Twitter. okay, (laughs) right. No problem. I can do that. This is going to turn into a thing for you at your job. okay, I can do that. And we can Kyrie. pick up the slack for you on that. Right. Yes. Yes. Any day, anytime you want. Oh, you don't work at ESPN anymore now, so they don't really care. They just really, yep. they really didn't like it when it was in house. But Kyrie, you gotta. I feel like this is just me. You gotta have some appreciation for the fact that you're making somebody's life really hard who didn't ask for this. And I don't think he understands or cares. Man, their phones are getting blown up. How many rabbis? do you think that Josiah has heard from in the last week and change as this has gone down? How many sponsors do you think the league has heard from in the last week and change? And they're like, yo, man, we, we can't burn all this money down just because of you. Can you help us out a little bit? And he's like, nope. Yep. Well, what's interesting is I think that particularly after I, I watched the movie and I did Bless not learn heart. much from the movie, yeah, but dude. It took him two days. But also, was, from, it's like it changed him forever. Yeah, like, but also uh, like talking to other people about it, and there is a a really interesting discussion to be had about how Kyrie and other black people arrive to these the said beliefs because they are, um, you know, they've had their history and their heritage essentially taken from them and erased, and so you have to sort of cast about in the darkness to figure out okay, who am I? Where did I come from? Where did my people come from? And that will naturally lead you down some dark avenues in in certain cases. Would would that be correct, Bamani? Yeah, but with him, I don't understand why it didn't lead you to the library. (laughs) it It doesn't have to be these places they end up. Now, I do agree with you, and I think that overall, not in the part that's not specific to black people, which is any doctrine that implies that you, whoever you may be, are the chosen people is always very attractive doctrines that are Mm -hmm. also attractive are those that say those others are the lesser people like explicitly makes that point 
those things always wind up selling. But when the conversation about this gets pivoted toward black people, the thing I think folks need to really understand and appreciate is, man, we don't really be taking them cats seriously. Yeah. Like, these are the dudes on 125th Street dressed right. like Funkadelic, right? And That's like, it's, what I it's, was it's, joking with people about this. That he's the one guy that walked past these dudes dressed like they're in the fucking Sun Ra Orchestra and, like, slowed down. And I was <laughs> like, well, this is interesting. Yeah, like, Tell me more. It's interesting to talk about this with New Yorkers in particular because once I realized that white people here have familiarity with the black Israelites, which is something I hadn't thought about because they used to post up at Times Square. Yeah. Um, it's not like they're out there on 125th Street talking this, and then all of a sudden the big crowd comes up and they walk away with all these new converts. That's not really how it goes. Like, this is very, very fringe in what he's yeah. into. But for us, I think, and I say us as black people, which is always a dangerous thing to say, but I don't think, aside from just like this simply not like taking them seriously intellectually, people don't really take them seriously as being like hateful or whatever word that people would use or it's would like ascribe a weird to them. habit of mind you pick up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We just, it's just like, oh, okay, it's those guys that are over there. Like the, the part they did worry me in the coverage of this and, and anti-Semitism as it functionally relates to the lives of Jews in the year 2022 is for real deal. And we've actually downplayed the history of like the violence associated with anti-Semitism in this country. All of those things are correct. But on the list of dangerous public anti-Semites in America, Kyrie is way low. <laughs> I, can, I can go find you some much more, for lack of a better term, legitimate figures who say far more pro problematic things for much larger audiences. Well, I'm just praying for governor of Pennsylvania. Be. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing you can look in politics. All we say is things you say now that can get you fired can also get you elected. It's a weird irony where people yeah. now vote for their id because the corporate world will not allow you to be your, like when people talk about, I want to be my authentic self at work. I'm like, there's another guy over there who wants to be his authentic self. And let me tell you, you don't want that. And right. that guy gets resentful and then now runs for office and then becomes that person and then speaks all the things those people wish they could say at work or wish they could say in public spaces. Um, and those people got some clout in this country now. And it ain't Kyrie. It's like, like he's, he's, he's not the one if you really want to put all your energy toward one. Yeah. He also, like, he lacks the focus. There's nothing sinister there, necessarily. I think he's, like, one of, like you were saying, like, a great many Americans that are, like, aware that something is not cooking right, aware that there is stuff that is probably true that they are not being told about. And then he wound up on the, like, the sort of the one weird trick flat tummy tea track <laughs> instead of, like, actually, like, reading and trying to get up to speed on what any of that is. Like, that's, I mean, that's how anti-Semitism has sort of functioned rhetorically here is that it's like it's like a version of socialism where you don't have to understand structures or power or anything where you just like you get your answer right away and that's why everything is happening he could also have better taste in propaganda i was like yes. i was expecting like at least like well-made propaganda like at least on the like the level of like ancient aliens on history channel or something like that <laughs> i ain't get fuck all like that they didn't even interview anybody like there was like there was there was one moment i swear to god where it was in the middle of the of the of the film and the narrator who was also the director who was also the producer said let us now sell let us now play some celebratory music as we bask in this new discovery and they cut the stock footage of a man in a grocery store dancing behind his cart for like 5 minutes 
like five whole fucking minutes. And I was like, and I left it on because I had to do my job as a journalist. I was like, I, I have to watch it. Can't fast forward. And I went and like, I made a snack and like, and by the time I was done making the snack and eating it, he was still dancing in the fucking grocery store. And I was like, Kyrie, we have to get you. We have to get you a, a movie that's 90 minutes long that's still hateful, but at least has some production values to it, goddamn. Yeah, give him the Errol Morris pill. I would, <laughs> I would like to hear more from the filmmaker. And the reason I say that is, so, you know, there was this one day I was doing some television on ESPN and I decided to wear a funny T-shirt or a T-shirt that I thought was funny and people thought I was making some radical statement about the world because the T-shirt said Caucasians. At least no one's still Caucasians. mad about it five years later. <laughs> <laughs> like, the T-shirt said Caucasians. It was in the Cleveland, then Cleveland Indians logo. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's and right. And it became a thing, right? The man who makes that shirt woke up that morning because I was doing Mike and Mike, so that's 6 to 10 Eastern. The man who was pressing up those shirts woke up one morning and went to his inbox and could not believe his eyes. And then soon after put a picture of me up in his home because now all of a sudden his shirt had blown up. Right. Does the man who made this film about Kyrie like he's got to send him a thank you card. Right. <laughs> he is, like I don't know how much of a cut he gets off of that twelve dollars, but I am sure that when he gets his whatever the equivalent of the Google AdSense statement is. For for his film, it has never looked like it did for the last yep. week. <laughs> never. Let's take a break and come right back with Bamani Jones of ESPN. We'll be right back. We're uh, we're back with Bamani Jones of ESPN. We're gonna talk football before we make him answer uh, fun bag questions that he will be like, oh god, why'd you ask me that? Uh, We've been a little bit tenuous discussing uh, the Washington Commanders' ownership situation, Roth and I, because both Roth and I believe, as millions of other people do, that Dan Snyder isn't going to sell that team until he actually sells it. However, I am now ready to say, thanks to reporting from ESPN, that I'm pretty certain this is going to happen. Bamani, do you feel like this is a done deal, that he's fucking out? I do. I don't know wow. who had the talk with him, right? The Tom Hagen through the fence with Frank right. Pentangeli talk <laughs> that they clearly had with Jerry Richardson. And he was like, okay, boys, I know what it is that I got to do, right? <laughs> um, with Snyder, the thing that makes it tricky is he put that news out right that day that the criminal investigation had come out. So it seemed just like an incredible diversion story or whatever. Um, I don't know what enough money is for him to feel like, fine, I'll sell the team. He lo This is who he is at this point. He loves being the owner of this team, no matter how much that makes people hate him. It hasn't really resulted in anything that I would deem to be positive for him. So it's going to take a lot to make him sell that team. And yes, um, yes, his punishment will be getting $7 billion, but I don't think people understand it. It's going to hurt him more than anybody can appreciate. But I do think that time is now up on this because he's costing them too much money and they want him out of there. I really never thought I would see the day. Like, not just yeah. because of what you just said, too, but like, I think it's similar. It reminds me, obviously, I have to bring the Mets up every episode. It's in it's in the contract. <laughs> but it's similar to like when the Wilpon sold where it's like, yeah, they have a lot more money now and they didn't really have like baseball owner money. But they get to, you know, if we're going to. <laughs> pull from a different mob movie they got to live the rest of their lives as schnooks now they're just out on long island with their fucking boats and no one cares what they do that's so right. true and may i add to that roth minnesota vikings now thank you we, <laughs> but uh but yeah snyder seven billion dollars is an unbelievably large amount of money i have a hard time imagining like i don't even know 
who could afford or what entity could afford to buy a team at that point? Oh, well, I, I think well, you know. We, we, we know. We know. I what is so it's. Oh, all right. Yeah. Oh, right. I just saw the one. I think you right. know. Okay. Precisely sorry. My bad. Yeah. You know, a uh, Washington area man, and that's uh, who he doesn't want to sell to. Right. That's the thing Which, I was going to ask you: is will he, if he gets the Godfather offer from Bezos for seven billion dollars, he gets to decide whether to tell Bezos to fuck off and give it to just some random other dipshit VC guy. But would he do that? Would he actually do that, or would he like? Would he take the offer? Well, from- and the league could also have the power to deny the sale, right? Like they That's could say true. this sale isn't going through. Like you got, like this will be kind of like when the Yankees show up in a free agent market, or at least back when the Yankees did such things. Yeah. And it's like bad news for you, boys. Don't know if you really want to play for the Yankees, but the union has decided that you are going to take this seven-year, three hundred seventy million dollar deal, and that's your new team that you're going to play for. It could be a very similar situation here now um, with Snyder on this, and it's just what stinks about the owners, and I just don't think comes up nearly enough is they just don't have any enforcement constraint within themselves that like we have a standard of behavior that we're going to hold up, and if you can't do that, you can you can't be part of our club. They're all so concerned that one day they'll get kicked out of the club that they right. can't yeah. in, in, instill any standard whatsoever for how people are supposed to behave when they own one of these teams. It is so wild to me yeah. to watch that happen and watch the media just kind of be like, oh, well, whatever they want to do is fine. They have all the money. Like, nobody has any heart in them. To, like, it took all of this for Dan Snyder for there to be a real strong push media-wise to be like, yo, what's going on? Well, the whole lure of becoming an NFL owner is that you live free of accountability. Like, that is the appeal of 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 spending your money on right. this shit. But I think to Bo's point, though, the part of it that's interesting to me is that, like, there's not, like, if you look at, like, baseball owners, even NBA owners to a certain extent, although it seems like Sarver is, like, starting to get moved towards the exit dramatically there, that, like, he did too much. There's not in the NFL owner ranks, like, the sort of solidarity that you're used to seeing among billionaire sports franchises owners that they're, like, I'm going mostly off that Mark Leibovich book about the NFL here where it's, like, it just seems like every now and then they get together in a conference room and are really like pissy with each other. Don't and fuck with me, Bob Crafty. Yeah, everything else that happens is happening after four drinks in a golf clubhouse. <laughs> that they're just like they're not together like that. Look, D- Dominique tells a great story about some disagreement that Jerry Jones had with Jerry Richardson um, in some meeting, and I can't remember what it was about. But Jerry Jones, in classic Texas oil man billionaire fashion, says to Jerry Richardson, I'll work you on the inside, you long arm motherfucker. Everybody pulling on the same rope. That's them. But the other thing that's interesting now with the NFL and why Bezos becomes interesting on the heels of the Broncos sale is they want to get like, industry industrialist class into the club now i don't know if they i don't know if we can call them the industrialist class anymore but they want what would have been the equivalent 100 years ago of andrew carnegie being an owner things as opposed to facilitated platforms for the selling of things (laughs) correct yes right your point is easy to understand yeah like they wanted the walton family for example to get in like the waltons are basically represented twice in the NFL and ownership now, with yeah, Conkey being, a, being, being a, a Walton in law, and then they sold the team to the Broncos. They want that level of American business person to be the ones that own the team. And so Bezos would fit in line with that. I don't know why anybody hasn't talked about the fact that it seems a little wild to have a team owner also own a platform that broadcasts your games. Like, I don't feel like you should be able to have both of those things. 
I mean, Bezos yeah. is going to... I mean, Bezos owning that team, he's five years away from becoming the biggest weed dealer in the history of, like, mankind. Yeah. So he's going to turn that... If he has, if he buys that team, and I'm, I'm kind of now convinced that he will, like, that stadium is going to become, like, the world's largest fucking... Amazon Fresh Store that ever like existed yeah. and all that shit. Wait a minute, you can what buy does... weed on Amazon now? Oh no, or I'm saying <laughs> I'm saying you will be able. To. Oh, okay. In my, it's it's what I what I hope for the future of America. <laughs> yeah. Drew's point. We were talking about this at work the other day too. That you feel like the thing that is keeping that team from getting everything they desire is that everybody hates Snyder so much, and so whoever the new owner is, but we can assume that it's Bezos. Drew, you really think that, like, as soon as that check clears, it's, like, a new stadium in the city of D.C., like, tax breaks, like, everybody is sort of welcome back. I think Bowser that- I think Bowser hands RFK, the RFK site, right over to the new owner. Mm-hmm. I think the fans come back. Uh, I think maybe they get rid of the fucking name. I don't know. But, like, I, I've been living here for two decades now, and all I ever hear from people are, like, God, man, Dan Snyder's only, like, 50 years old, like... I will die before he does and just lamenting that. And the idea that he's going to get out of the paint, these people did not think that they were going to live to see the day that he was going to fuck off. If he does, fuck it, man. Party in the streets, man. Yeah. Everybody's going to no, fuck it. Unfortunately, I've already mentioned the Mets and therefore cannot comment. That's right. <laughs> and the and the fans are going to come back. Like I interviewed for a job with some DC outlet. I guess this is about 10 years ago. And at the time, they were talking about the Wizards. And they said it's so interesting to watch Wizards TV ratings because you can see when they start getting good. Like you can look at the Wizards ratings and tell where they are in the standings or what happens from game to game. Because anytime there's a flicker, people give it a try, right? Like they just want it so like... bad. But of course. Here's, but, but here's something else about Snyder that I find to be interesting. Somehow he's not the worst owner in the history of the franchise, right? Yes. No! <laughs> he's not. Because they have George Preston Marshall, but the parallels there are interesting. Like I didn't realize this until like literally right now. I pulled up the wiki page. George Preston Marshall got the team when he was 36, and he owned it for 37 years. Like, he died an untimely, like, he had a stroke or something that, you know, incapacitated him toward the end. But you it's say very that's untimely at 73? Would you say <laughs> that's Well, I think, I think the late. stroke was before, and then he was just kind of, like, All right, all right. All right. As someone who had a stroke at uh, 42, I want to yeah. say that my stroke, untimely. Fair I, point. I, I'm fair, fair point. in saying it's untimely. Fair point. I forgot this was not merely a hypothetical discussion. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Um, it's all right. I like playing the stroke victim card sometimes. Yeah, realize just for hit, I forgot it was hitting so close to home. Um, <laughs> but, like, Marshall was the worst, the absolute worst, and they couldn't only get him to integrate the team in order to get the stadium and all of this. And Snyder's the same guy. The difference is they put George Preston Marshall in the Hall of Fame. Like, if you want to know how much things have changed in the last 40 years, it's that one right there. Snyder ain't getting nowhere near nobody's hall of nothing, not even if he yep. builds it himself. Let's talk about one other shitty owner while we're here, and that's Colts owner Jim Ursay. because uh, this week um, he fired Frank Reich. He hired Jeff Saturday, former Senator Jeff Saturday, who has no head coaching experience except at, like, a fucking high school. And he wasn't yes. even that good of a high school coach. And Jeff Saturday had, had to hire the... <laughs> A guy who, whose wedding was officiated officiated by Frank Reich to call the plays, and he hasn't called plays before. I have not seen... There's also a report that came out today that Ursay was the one who forced GM Chris Ballard to take on a succession of washed-out quarterbacks to support this roster and see if they could win a Super Bowl in the post-Andrew Luck era. 
I have never seen a team bail on a season and go into such severe tank mode as quickly as I've seen this happen with the Colts. Is there any precedent for you, Bamani, or am I exaggerating? I can't think of the last time somebody had an external interim hire. Like, you can say that Saturday is a consultant, but no, that dude works with us. He was supposed to, he was supposed to be on Get Up yesterday, as I understand it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there was a great series of videos. I think it was, like, Hannah. Somebody was, like, supposed to be introducing him uh, for, like, analysis after games on Sunday. And they were like, Jeff was supposed to be here, but he's, like, um, getting onboarded in Indianapolis <laughs> right now. And, like, can't. Jeff yeah. said himself, Saturday himself, he said to Ursay, he was like, I was shocked by it. And I asked Ursay, what what did I do to deserve this? Like the exact opposite of a job interview. It's the candidate saying, why am I, why should I have this job instead of the, <laughs> uh, instead of the other way around? I can't fucking yeah. believe it. Yeah, and the thing for me is that they made this move and I'm not sure that Ursay's trying to tank. I mean, it looks like an obvious tanking situation from where we stand, but when he said that thing about these coaches are governed by fear and how down he is on analytics and then he went and got um, Saturday, I'm like, wait a minute. Are you trying to make some like broader statement about the NFL? Are you basically saying that coaching doesn't matter? Because that's what it feels like he was saying is that these NFL coaches are so bogged down by all this stuff. So let's just fly by the seat of our pants and see how this winds up going. Yep. And I just can't imagine being the dudes on the field. Like all you can tell them is the eye in the sky don't lie and you playing for your paycheck every week because it's the NFL. Can you? And Saturday's a good dude. Saturday's a nice dude. He's going to be very relatable to players. Like I think as a figurehead type, if you were trying to tank and have a good face on it that the fans love. I thought this would make sense. And then I listened to Earth saying, I was like, wait a minute, you think this is going to work? Right. That's the magic of rich guy brain right there. <laughs> is that it's just, it does have that sense of it's like this executive belief in like ideas bigger than football that also can only coexist if you like don't understand or even really maybe care about football. <laughs> and so the idea is like, you know, whatever, another powerful, charismatic like recognizably on TV white guy can do something that no coach could do. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that you would be inclined to believe if you yourself were also somebody who could be described that way. Yeah. And see, Ursay, and I'm generally like fairly positive about Ursay. I think that he's, I think he's funny. He just had the face turn when he was like, we got to get Snyder out of the fucking paint. And everyone was like, oh my God, finally an owner with integrity. And then he does this. But like, yeah, that that was the funny part. But like, like somebody, one of my colleagues hit me and was like, yeah, now I believe you. Then I say Ursay went rogue on the Snyder thing because clearly he's not asking anybody uh, before he decides to do anything. But like, he's the guy, I think he's like a big, like Harry Reid, Bernie Sanders donor. Like, he is the NFL owner that is a bit dissimilar than the others and the rare second generation owner that's way better at this than his dad was like the the second generation Rooney and this second generation guy are the rare ones that actually like took this to a whole nother place because his dad was the worst person in the world like they're all all these things that come together in the Ursa story are so wild he's the guy that was like we're gonna go hire Tony Dungy then came behind it with Caldwell like that's you know on the Rooney rule stuff that's I think where he can lay his head on but the reason that the Rooney rule is not in place for interim hires is no one would ever think that somebody would go outside to hire an interim. That's like saying you got to you got to interview three people to be a substitute teacher the morning yeah. of school. Like, no, you just go get somebody in here. Yeah, this is like classic, like this. an actual instance in real life of the like air bud. There's nothing in the rule book that says a dog can't play basketball <laughs> scenario, <laughs> which is really inspiring. But I how about this? What are they going to look like on Sunday? 
right? The 30-year-old guy calling plays that's never called plays before. You know John Fox and Gus Bradley got to be salty as hell about how all of this has gone on. The players, how can they think this is real? Right, they and they the Raiders and too, they just, right? Is that this Sunday? They do. If they if they if the Raiders lose to them, oh fucking be! It's gonna be avant garde. If, they, I, if I the Raiders think... lost and they fire Josh McDaniels, no one could comp- no one would bat an eye. It would just be like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, and it's amazing that like Mark Davis, like easily one of the cheapest owners, like that he'd be willing to eat Gruden's contract, which I think he'll have to eventually do. And then be like, God, shit, I have to eat another fucking fifty million dollar contract. Hey, hold on. Shit. not cheapest owners brokest owners yeah yeah like, there you, you can't go. really afford to do this but like i think for sure like obviously whatever you lose to sam ellinger and the interim squad <laughs> the Colts, then like obviously that's the move you have to make i mean they were they put on one of the worst offensive performances anyone has ever seen statistically a week ago against new england and that was with frank reich in position like that was with him actually coaching now they're gonna try to try out the same offense without like an experienced play caller or an experienced head coach, I think someone might die. Maybe someone <laughs> dies. I shouldn't laugh, but yeah, possible. Your guy of the week. We have to remember a guy, Bamani Jones. It's Tony Banks. You remember Tony Banks? Yes, I do remember Tony Banks. Oh. The, uh, I believe, and I'm not looking it up, but I believe he was the starter at the beginning of the yes, 2000 Ravens championship yes, season. Was. Got unseated by Trent Dilfer, and the rest is history. I remember when... He was drafted, I believe, by the Rams, yes. right? Out of Michigan State. And it was like, it was his second rounder. And it was like, ooh, he might be good. And he ended up being like a journeyman and like a fairly capable one. Like, I think he was in the league for like a dozen years at least. Yeah, he had the like Charlie Batch career where he was like a starter for a little bit and then just like this beloved backup guy for a decade, yes. which is a pretty good life, it seems like. So a couple thoughts on Tony Banks. One, I assure you he lets everybody know we'd have won that Super Bowl with me too, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, because they won it with Trent Dilfer. Like, he is definitely like, okay, there we go. Number two, me and Dominique talk about this a lot. Like, we're finally in the era of black quarterbacks where there have been enough that we as a collective don't necessarily feel inclined to root for every single one of them. Like, every now and then, you can just pop up and be like, oh, okay, that guy isn't very good, but that wasn't the case 25 years ago, and I will just never forget my daddy was adamant Tony Banks can play. Because <laughs> I was just like, hey, man, he ain't really got it, right? You know, but for my dad, this means something completely different, right? right? Like, like a lot riding on it. Yeah, like the mere sight is something mind-blowing. It's Tony Banks can play. Yeah, but yeah Tony, Tony, Banks, Tony Banks definitely says, I quarterback the Super Bowl winner. And people are like, actually, it was Trent Dilfer. What's the difference? Right. He's like, if you go back and look at the record, I actually did quarterback that team. <laughs> and that's usually not the dad bit. move. The dad move is that your dad is the first person to pl- tell you that a player stinks, not that yes. he's good. No, no, he was adamant about that. Well, he was worried. You know, I grew up around white people, which, you know, that always made him a little bit nervous there. So he was worried I was selling out in these moments, right? Like, come on, man, you can't ride for Tony Banks. But for me, I grew up in War Moon. Like, I'd see black quarterbacks, you know? Like, it was yeah. like, okay. I was I read the uh, the Jason Reed book about the the rise of the black quarterback for the reading series thing I do with Patrick Sauer. It's a really interesting book, but it is striking. Like Warren Moon was like the first black quarterback that I remember seeing, and it was like he was also the first black quarterback that basically anyone had seen throw a pass as a consistent starter for like twenty years before yes. that. That there's like Marlon Briscoe was in there for like one season. And then you're like in the prehistory of the sport, basically. Yeah, and like Doug, there, and so Doug like, Williams with the Bucks, like that's right, basically yes. Vince Evans yeah. got to run around a little bit 
for the Bears. But no, that is, and I didn't realize that because we moved to Houston in 87. So I had just turned seven years old and War Moon was the quarterback. And it never dawned on me what the rarity of the circumstance was. At least at the time, it was like, oh, they got a black quarterback here. And his name was Moon. That was what I thought was weirder than anything else is that his last name was Moon and they wore light blue jerseys. Like, there was a lot of things there that just yep. didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But, yeah, Warren Moon was everybody's black. Like, Warren Moon and Randall Cunningham was everybody's black quarterback there for a good well, 10 years. Well, not only was Warren Moon passing the ball, he was in the passingest offense that could ever possibly exist and won't exist again. So yes. Like, One of the craziest details in that Jason Reed book is so the – I don't think it was a Cowboy Scout – uh, wanted the team to draft Warren Moon. And the team was like, what, can he return kicks? Is he a receiver? And they were like, he's not even fast, dude. <laughs> like, he's just black. Like, you like have to look at the numbers that are in here. They didn't take him, and that's why he had to go to Canada. That yep. Like, he basically, like, the fact that he played quarterback the way that he did so did not compute. Like, it wasn't a Randall Cunningham thing. Like, he wasn't mobile. Right. Like, he won the Rose Bowl his senior year, back when everybody in America was watching the Rose Bowl. Like, they were just really like, nah, we just not going to do this, man. You know, like the idea that he went to Washington and not USC. Because something that has not been discussed that I recognize, this Caleb Williams that's at USC right now, if I am not mistaken, there was no black starting quarterback between him and Rodney Pete. Damn. Christ. <laughs> Is that possible? Stop and think about it. If you can name the black yeah, USC I mean, quarterback, good luck. Because they, you know, they go get those. They were getting all those private school pro set guys for all mm-hmm. that time, and it was just That's all right. those dudes. They got a commitment from Bryce Young, and he didn't go. But it had really been that long, right? So it's like Warren Moon couldn't even play for USC. Then he goes to Washington, and they win a Rose Bowl at Washington. So what about the NFL? And we know how hard it is to find quarterbacks. And they're like, Nah, fuck that. What are you talking yeah. about? Let's open up the fun bag. This is from Mike. Mike writes in Bamani. You find a bundle of cash on the ground. It's soaked, and it's been there a while. You count it, and you discover it's just shy of five figures. What do you do with the mysterious wet package of cash you find on the ground? That's over $10,000, Bamani Jones. Oh, I'm not even counting it. I'm walking away. I know it's set up. (laughs) Uh, when I see one, like something, something, somebody, here's the thing. Somebody's looking for that money and they will find it one way or another. Now, if you, now if I got what, what, what they call it in Florida, some of that square group, group of roll up. Okay. That might be, yes, actually, no, that's what I was about to say. Am I really going to take a bundle of cocaine before I take the money? No, and that's <laughs> yep. only because I wouldn't know who to go to with the cocaine. Yeah, but I saw True Romance, and everything worked out for Clarence Worley in that movie. Fair. So I yeah. would take the, the free cocaine. The cash, I saw a simple plan, and that didn't work out. <laughs> so the cocaine, I think maybe play. I could do something with. But I like the, So whoever sent this question in, I just want to applaud them for making clear that the money is wet. Yes. <laughs> That like, was thanks for, for you. Making it, that was thanks for, for making it extra gross. Like, because it's not just like the, Bamani and you both gave very practical answers. There's a part of like, before I decide whether I'm going to take the money or not, I'm going to be like soaked with what? <laughs> if you're like, oh, hundred thousand dollars, ew, there's mustard on it, ew. <laughs> it's just covered in ketchup. Oh, my fingers are sticky now. Ew. <laughs> Uh, this is from Scott. He writes in, if you took a pro athlete and you put him on a high school team, what sport would that athlete or team dominate the most? He thinks an NBA or WNBA player on a given high school basketball team would score 300 points and block every shot, every game. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but Bamani, uh, which pro athlete in which sport would, uh, flip the table or, or, uh, or make a high school team the most dominant they could possibly be? 
I think the answer, honestly, is putting Jacob DeGrom on a high school team. Ooh. Because, look, Ooh. he's only going to need to throw 27 pitches. That's, he could pitch yeah. every day. Yeah, and he also is, like, a good enough hitter that he— that's the two-way thing that makes this question that, like, makes you think that it should be a basketball thing. But, like, Jacob DeGrom's a pretty good hitter for a major league pitcher, which means that also no high school pitcher would be able to get him out. No. No, look, I, when I was in high school, and I did not play high school baseball, but I was just messing around with one of the best players on the team. I was like, hey, throw me some pitches. And I was a good little league pitcher. I had some things going. Man, listen. <laughs> it was I just allowed him to put on a show when I was actually able to throw with some measure of control. I just can't imagine what it's like to be a high school kid and you're standing on the and Jake DeGrom. is like, he's not, ain't no signs. I'm just throwing the one. Every right. time. Right down the middle, too. You won't even see it. It's like, I don't think the normal human eyes, like if someone throws a 101-mile-an-hour fastball at you, it doesn't matter if it, like, rises or is located. Like, you're just hearing sound. Yeah, you yes. don't. You don't. You you're don't hearing, like, it. a sizzling sound as it goes past you and then a very loud percussive impact in the globe. You can't you even said, hold the bat tight enough so that it don't give you the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. said, Bamaya reminds me of, like, any time, uh, like, a quarterback throws a block or a punter makes a tackle and the color guys are always like, wow, I can't believe this little underdog was able to like make a block motherfucker that's like a world-class athlete who would like if he played linebacker in high school that quarterback yep. he'd fuck everybody up just yeah. com- without when the, the punter played quarterback in high school he'd no, fuck that's the thing up. about the punter the punter was a football player the kicker played soccer the punter yes. played some football position oh yeah yeah and there are a lot of beefy punters now in the nfl yeah now they're all aussies too so they've all like actually tackled people in game action before they just like they were tackling like another australian guy in an australian rules football game and then we're like good on you mate and the other guy's like right <laughs> <laughs> the uh the other answer that i would give to this was probably unfair because again i don't know if he can play defense is um derrick henry's iconic high school football highlight videos Oh, like well, you, you don't yeah. really need to have a football team if you had like this version of Derrick Henry playing against high school kids. Like just run the Wildcat or something. Derrick Henry wouldn't even points. have to have his pro career to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame just because of the high school footage. Yo, <laughs> how much overthinking was required for him to be a four star recruit? When you look it's at incredible. those numbers and you look in that film, how much overthinking was required for people to be like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't see it. His I mean, works a little it. off. <laughs> yeah, like, that has to be it. Or they're like, he's too tall. Like I, I don't know. It was like, it I was like a, a speed, running yeah, back. It was a speed question, and I just don't know how fast he needed to be. He's because he outruns NFL defensive backs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brandon Nix and Chantel Holder are our producers. Nor Richie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to Roth and me, you get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. StitcherPremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. Go subscribe to Defector.com too, as always. And, of course, you can watch the first season of Game Theory on HBO Max anytime you want. And the second season comes uh, January 20th. Do I have that correct, Bamani? Yes, you do. All right. Thank you, Bamani Jones, for coming on the podcast. We'll see you all next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.